TED Audio Collective. Hi, TED Talks Daily listeners. This week, we're sharing a series called TED Connects, Community and Hope. Some very timely conversations with TED speakers around the coronavirus pandemic. This one features philanthropist Bill Gates in a virtual conversation with head of TED Chris Anderson and current affairs curator Whitney Pennington Rogers. Let us know what you think by leaving a review or emailing us at podcasts at TED.com. Support comes from Zuckerman Spader. Through nearly five decades of taking on high-stakes legal matters, Zuckerman Spader is recognized nationally as a premier litigation and investigations firm. Their lawyers routinely represent individuals, organizations, and law firms in business disputes, government, and internal investigations, and at trial, when the lawyer you choose matters most. Online at Zuckerman.com. Support for TED Talks Daily comes from Capital One Bank. With no fees or minimums, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than deciding to listen to another episode of your favorite podcast. And with no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. TED Talks Daily is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Quote now at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to everyone joining us from around the globe. Thank you for being part of day two of our special series, TED Connects. This week, we're bringing you interviews from some of the world's greatest minds to offer tools for us to navigate through and thrive in these really uncertain times. I'm Whitney Pennington-Rogers, TED's current affairs curator, and I'll be one of your hosts for today's event. Yesterday, we kicked off this series with an interview from acclaimed psychologist Susan David, who offered us some tips on how to really be our best selves in these trying times. And we're going to switch gears a little bit today from thinking about our own personal mental health to the state of our global public health systems. Thank you. Um, I guess we have a pretty exciting guest to introduce. Um, On the other side of the country, let's bring in Bill Gates. Bill, they say the the, uh, better known people are, the less you have to intro them. So (laughs) it's great to have you here. How how are you doing? Well, I think this is an unprecedented really disconcerting time for everyone uh, with things being shut down, not knowing exactly how long it's going to last, worrying about the health of all the people we care about. Um, You know, I'm lucky that I get to connect up with uh, video conferencing using Teams a lot. So the, you know, foundation is stepping up and there's a lot of uh, great people trying to uh, help with this crisis. But it's, it's scary for everyone. Are you basically stuck at home like like many of us watching? Yeah, almost all my meetings are uh, using Teams now. I'm getting used to that. Uh, you know, I've gone days without uh, seeing, seeing uh, any work co-workers. Let, let's start here, Bill. Uh, five years ago, you stood on the TED stage and uh, you gave this this chilling warning that the world was in danger at some point of a major pandemic. <laughs> People watching that talk now, you know, the hair stands up on the back of their neck. It is, it is exactly what we're living through. What happened? Did, did people listen to that warning at all? Basically, no. Um, you know, I was hopeful that with the um, Zika and Ebola and SARS and MERS, they all reminded us uh, that particularly in a world where people move around so much, Uh, you can get uh, huge devastation. And so the talk was to say, hey, we're not ready for the next pandemic, but in fact, uh, there's advances in science that if we put resources against them, we can be ready. Sadly, very little was done. There were some things. The uh, Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation, uh, CEPI, was funded by our foundation uh, welcome uh, trust and a number of governments. 
um, to do some of the uh, platform vaccine work, but the in the area of diagnostics, antibodies, antivirals, uh, basically doing the disease games that I talked about where we'd simulate uh, what needed to be done. Uh, we hardly did anything, and, and so now here we have a respiratory virus uh, that is sadly fulfilling uh, some of the more negative predictions I made. I mean, last month you said um, that this might be the big one. You, 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 you wrote that this, this could be the sort of once-in-a-century pandemic um, that people had been fearing. <clears throat> is that how you think of it still? Well, I, it's awful to say this, but we could have a respiratory virus whose case fatality rate was even higher if this was something like smallpox. You know, that kills 30% of people. So this is horrific. Uh, but, you know, in fact, uh, most people, even who get the COVID disease, are able to survive. So it, in that, it's quite infectious, way more infectious than MERS or SARS were. It's not as fatal as they were, uh, and yet the disruption we're seeing in order to knock it down is, is you know, really completely unprecedented. So this is a, you know, it's going global. Uh, that was, it's respiratory. Uh, that was the great fear. Um, how many people end up dying? Uh, hopefully, you know, if we do the right things, it won't be a gigantic number. So it's, you know, we, we should end up not having a 1918 flu situation. Uh, we should be able to do a lot better than that. And that's, that's because of actions that we would take. I mean, left um, without the right actions, the prospects are pretty, are pretty deadly. I mean, if we, if we knew what we knew in 1919, um, this thing could take out many t tens of millions of people around the world. Because, uh, like you said, is, is the key thing here that it's, it's got this sort of um, strange combination of being um, certainly more dangerous than flu, not as dangerous as something like Ebola or, or, or SARS, but more dangerous than, than flu by a factor. But, but, but infectious, and, and also infectious before symptoms have started. Is that part of why it's, it's been really hard to respond to? Right, so Ebola, you're actually flat on your back before you're very infectious. So you're not uh, at church or in a bus or at a store. Uh, with most respiratory viruses like the flu and COVID, uh, at first you only feel a little bit of a fever and a little bit sick. And so there's the possibility you're going about your normal activities and infecting other people. And so, you know, human-to-human -human transmissible respiratory viruses that in the early stage aren't um, stopping you from doing things, that's kind of a worst case. And that's where, you know, I did a flu simulation in the 2015 talk and showed how quickly it spread. You know, versus 1918, people move around a lot more now than they used to. And so that works against us. Now, the medical system that steps up to treat people is also far, far better. But it was, when was it clear to you that, um, that unless we acted, this, this could be a really deadly pandemic? Well, in January, it was discussed that there was human-to-human -human transmission taking place. And so, you know, the alarm bells uh, were ringing uh, that, this fits the very scary pattern that it will be very difficult to contain. And in, in, on January 23rd, China did their equivalent of the shutdown, uh, did it in a fairly extreme form. The very good news is that they were able to reduce the infection rates uh, dramatically because of those actions. But it's, it's January where everybody should have been on notice. Uh, let's get our act together with testing. Let's get going on uh, therapeutics and vaccines. Uh, we've got to get organized because we have this novel respiratory virus who's 
infectiousness and fatality put it in that super scary range. And so what, what did happen? Because it's such a mystery to me about the, the, the sort of the last month of, of preparation. Certainly, I mean, in many countries and certainly in the US where, where we are, were you on the phone to people during early February, late January, early February, saying, you know, guys, you know, what's going on? This is a really big deal. What are we doing? What, what was happening behind the scenes during that period? Well, you'd like to have government money show up <clears throat> for the key activities. We uh, put out $100 million. We created the Therapeutics Accelerator. There's the period between when we realized it was transmitting and now where we should have done more. I think the most important thing to discuss today is that in the area of testing, we're still not uh, creating that capacity and applying it to the people most in need. And so we have health workers who are symptomatic, who can't get a test, uh, and so they don't know should they go in and not go in. And yet we have lots of tests being given to people who aren't symptomatic. And so the testing thing to me, it, it's got to be organized. It's got to be prioritized. Uh, that is super, super urgent. The second thing is the isolation that, you know, various parts just focusing on the U.S., some parts are doing that in a fairly strong way and other parts not yet. And, you know, it's very hard to do. It's tough on people. It's disastrous for the economy. Uh, but the sooner you do it in a, in a tough way, the sooner you can undo it uh, and go back to normal. I, so, so we'll come to the isolation part in a, in a minute, but just sticking with the testing thing, I'm just so confused as to why with more than a month's notice, I mean, there are so many smart epidemiologists in the, in the US, for example, you plug numbers about infectiousness and fatality into any simulation and you see that if you don't do anything, millions of people will die and there's a month. So what, what's your explanation for what, what do you think happened here as to why just no, there was almost no test, a month later there was no viable test in the US. Was this just government complexity, too many chefs in the kitchen? What on earth happened here? Well, we certainly didn't take advantage of the month of February. The good news is that the actual process, the PCR um, machines, we have a lot in the United States. And so there's models like South Korea who took advantage of February, built up the testing capacity, and they were able to contact trace and their infections have gone down even without the type of shutdown that because we're late, we're, we're having to do. One thing that uh, is good news just this week is that People had thought to do this test that you had to have a nurse or doctor shove a swab way up uh, all the way to the back of your throat, which hurts a lot, but also uh, you're going to cough and potentially spread the disease to that healthcare worker. So they have to have protective equipment and change that. What we sent data to the FDA this weekend showing that just a individual by themselves swabbing up to the tip of their nose, uh, they're able, the accuracy of that test is essentially the same as having a healthcare worker do it. That helps a lot. It, we still have to do other things, but that means that you don't have to change protective equipment. You just hand the patient that swab, they do it, put it in the test tube, and if the capacity's right, uh, within 24 hours, you should get that result back. So how, how do you see that playing out? Are there, are there people going to massively scale those, those tests? And, and how, will, how will ordinary citizens be able to get hold of them? Does it still have to be actually kind of prescribed by a doctor at some point? Or at some point, will you be able to just order them off Amazon or something? And, uh, well, it's pretty <laughs> so chaotic somewhere. today because the government hasn't stepped in to make sure that the testing capacity is both increased and it's used for the right cases. There'll be a website uh, 
and if the federal government doesn't do it, a lot of local governments will have to do it, that you go to, you give your situation, including your symptoms, you're told, you know, based on your work and your symptoms, are you a priority? If so, you're told where there are kiosks you can go to, and you'll do the self-swab and just hand uh, it over, or eventually uh, we'll send the kits to you at home, and uh, then you'll send it back and, and hear that result. Maybe six months from now, you'll actually be able to perform, you have a strip where you perform the tests in the home. But for now, the sending it back for the PCR processing, we can have massive capacity there. And that's how you know the testing is everything because that's how you know whether you need to do more shutdown or you're starting to get to the point where you can relieve it. Some people are trying to argue now that... Um almost the testing should be dialed back because, you know, the cat is out of the bag. Testing is bringing people together and risking infection. You know, forget that. Let's just focus on treatment and on isolate and on isolation strategies. Um, you disagree with that. Testing is still absolutely essential and needs to be scaled gradually. Well, the two that go together are testing <laughs> at very high volume and the isolation piece. If you're, a, if you're a medical worker, you want to stay and do your job. If you're making sure the electricity, water, food uh, is still available, you want to do your job. And so testing is what indicates to you, do you need to go into isolation and make sure you're not the source of spread? And so, you know, testing is, is the key thing. Uh, you know, South Korea did that in this massive way that... Uh, you know, everybody should learn from. And so that, it, that is uh, paired with the isolation piece. Our goal here is to get to the point where a very small percentage of the population is infected. You know, China, only 0.01% of the population was infected. If you let it, if you don't do these things, you're going to get to uh, the majority of people infected and that huge overload of the medical system. Whitney has some questions from our online audience. Whitney. Some of the questions that we're seeing are about how our tech giants and leaders can play a role in, in isolating this and containing this, um, this virus. Uh, you know, the tech companies are very involved in making sure that some work can go on. Uh, you know, people can stay in touch. You know, they can help with some of the disease modeling. They can help with the visibility of the numbers. It's actually very impressive. You know, you get up there and you can see, you know, those numbers. Actually, they're sad numbers, but, uh, you know, everybody's able to monitor this thing. Back in 1918, they didn't have this type of visibility uh, and, and ability uh, to share uh, best practices. But for a lot of people, the isolation is the key thing. I mean, Bill, one of the, the riddles about this isolation strategy um, is how long, it, how long it has to last, right? Like a, a lot of people are concerned that the, the price of victory by, by isolating everyone is that you crash the economy and that, you know, we have to be basically at home, not doing our regular jobs for three, six months, maybe, maybe all year. Do, do, and so much so that there's now this big debate in the U.S. and other countries about this may just be the wrong strategy, that we can't crash the economy that badly. We should only isolate for another couple of weeks and then let people back. And if that means, you know, a lot of other people get sick and we eventually build up herd immunity, that may be the right, the right way to go. What, what, what's your thought on this? What is the, the isolation strategy that eventually leads to us getting back to normal? Um, and it's very tough to say to people, hey, keep going to restaurants, you know, go uh, buy new houses. Ignore that pile of bodies over in the corner. Just, you know, we want you to keep spending because there's some, uh, maybe a politician who thinks GDP growth is, is what really counts. It's very hard to tell people when there's an epidemic spreading that, you know, threatens uh, particularly uh, their parents or elderly people that they know, that they should go about things knowing that their activity is spreading this disease. Uh, I don't know of any rich countries that have chosen to use that approach. It is true if you did that approach, 
over a period of several years, enough people would be infected, you'd have what's called herd immunity. But herd immunity is meaningless until you infect over half the population. And so you can take, you'll overload your medical system, so your case fatality rate, instead of being 1%, will be like 3 4%. Uh, and so, you know, the idea, it's very irresponsible for somebody to suggest we can have the best of both worlds. What we need is the extreme shutdown to, so that in six to 10 weeks, if things go well, then you can start opening back up. So, so just putting the math together from what you just said, Bill, to get to herd immunity, you need more than half the, the people in the country to basically get the bug. So in the case of the US, for example, that would be 150 million people thereabouts. You said that there could be the, the, the fatality rate in that scenario. You're talking about four to five million people in that, in that potential fatalities. I mean, it's like, like it, it, that, that is just a horrifying uh, scenario that no one should be contemplating. Even 1% of their population getting sick. They will treat whoever goes for this ignore the disease uh, strategy. They will treat them as a prior state. So no, none of their people will go in and none of your people will, will go into that. And so briefly, a few countries in Europe that hadn't really looked at this hard considered, okay, should be, we be the ones who kind of go about business as usual? It is tempting because if, if you got there early, South Korea did not have to do the extreme shutdown because they did such a good job on testing. And, you know, that's Test, why it's testing so maddening to me that the government's not allocating the testing to, uh, to where it's needed, um, you know, and maybe that'll have to happen at the state level because it's, it's not happening at the federal level. But there is, there is no middle course on this thing. It is sad that the shutdown will be harder for poorer countries than it is for richer countries. So, so let's come into that in a minute. But just the one exception I've had the case made for is Japan, that Japan has not contained it quite in the same way that South Korea did, um, but has allowed people to work. It's tried to make extreme measures for protecting their most elderly population. But they've, they've, they've tried to sort of, um, like they've tried to find a middle scenario, haven't they? Well, if you act when you have you know, hundreds of cases, uh, you may be able to contain it by doing great testing and great contact tracing and restricting foreigners coming in without as much damage to your economy. The U.S. has passed this opportunity to control without shutdown so that the worst case of what was happening in uh, Wuhan in the beginning or in northern Italy uh, you know, over the last few weeks, that we avoid that. Uh, but we, we did not act fast enough to have a, uh, a, an ability to avoid the shutdown. But then what I don't understand, is, in the case of the U.S., for example, is that if, if, even if we're successful in bending the curve and reducing the number of new cases from a period of extreme shutdown, as it were, no immunity has been built up. Let's say that there's still no vaccine. Surely when you lift restrictions and people start going back to work, the whole thing just blows up again. The experience that we're seeing in China and in South Korea is that there are not these people who are asymptomatic that are causing lots of infections. And that's a parameter that as you build the model, uh, you have to put in. If there's an imperial model that people talk about a lot, which shows that reopening is very hard to do, uh, but it, the results of that model are not matching what we see in China. And so very likely there aren't as many of these infecting asymptomatics. And that's why you have to be pragmatic. There's a lot we don't know. For example, seasonality may help us in the Northern Hemisphere. The force of infection will um, respiratory viruses, uh, to some degree, they all are, are, are seasonal. We don't know how seasonal this one is, uh, but you know, there's a reasonable chance that the force of infection will be going down. And it's your testing that always is telling you, oh my gosh, do I have to shut down more 
or can I start to open up? So particularly right as you open up, that testing and contact tracing is, is saying to you, and I'm, you know, you can say I'm on the more optimistic side that it will be possible to do what China's doing where, uh, you know, they are starting to go back to normal. And help me understand what happened there, because it seems kind of miraculous to me, because they, they, this virus was exploding, yes, in Wuhan, but, but people moved from there to many other parts of China. How is it possible that, that the combination of the shutdown in Wuhan and measures elsewhere seem to have got to the point where there are literally no new cases happening? I mean, to me, that implies that literally the virus is not circulating at all, uh, between humans in China, how on you know there's a few tourists coming in who they deal with, but I mean, how how on earth? Like, is that is that literally your interpretation of what happened? That oh, absolutely. it's no longer circulating. The, in what China? you should do is take a spreadsheet and take a number like four. One person affects four people, and say the cycle you know is every ten days. Go through you know eight of those cycles uh, and you're getting a big number, you know, start with 10,000 and then, you know, that increase. If you take the number 0.4 instead, that is the average case infects 0.4 people, which uh, then look at what happens to that number as you go out. It, It drops to zero. And so things that are exponential are very, very dramatic. When they're above one, they are growing rapidly. When they're below one, they're shrinking rapidly. And so the isolation in China drove that reproductive number to well below zero. And so local below, infection below rates- one, Below one. Uh, below one, sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's a, you know, that's that quarantine, that's, you know, quarantine comes from 40 days, which is what they thought would help for Black, black Plague. Uh, that is our primary technique. Thank God we have testing if we use it properly. We are, you know, doing therapeutics, which will help with the death rate. But in terms of the keeping infections below 1% of the population, it's, it's really all depends just on the two things, isolation and testing. So um, to quote a question from my Twitter feed this morning for you, Bill, like if you were president for a month in the U.S., <laughs> What would be the, the top two or three things you would do? Well, the clear message that we have no choice to maintain this isolation, and that's going to keep going for a period of time, you know, probably in the Chinese case, it was like six weeks. So we have to prepare ourselves for that and do it very well, and then use the testing and every week talk about what's going on with that. If you're doing isolation well, within about 20 days, you'll see those numbers really change. You know, instead of this, you'll see this. And that is a sign that you're on your way. It, now, you have to stay to get those more generations that are, you know, 0.4 infections per previous infection. You have to maintain it for a number of weeks there. And, you know, so this is not going to be easy Uh, We need a clear message about that. It is really tragic that the economic effects of this are very dramatic. I mean, nothing like this has ever happened to the economy in our our lifetimes. But money, you know, bringing the economy back and doing money, that's more of a reversible thing than bringing people back to life. Uh, And so we're going to take the pain in the economic dimension, huge pain, in order to minimize the pain in the disease and death dimension. Whitney. So we have a lot of other questions coming in. One of the ones that we've been seeing is this question about what tools are available for countries that maybe um, don't have the luxury of being able to social distance, don't have great um, health systems in place. How should they be handling this virus? Yeah, I would say that... um, if the rich countries really do their job well, by the summer, uh, they'll be like China is, or some of the other countries that responded early. But in the developing countries, particularly in the Southern Hemisphere, the seasonality is, is large, 
as you say, the ability to isolate, you know, when you go out to get your food every day, uh, you know, you have to earn your wage. When you live in a, a slum where you're very nearby each other, it's very hard to do. Uh, as you move down the income ladder, uh, than it is for a, a country like like the United States. And so we should all, you know, accelerate the vaccine, which eventually will come. And, you know, people are being responsible to say that, you know, that's going to take 18 months. Uh, uh, and there's a lot of those being pursued. Um, you know, I'm, I'm talking a lot with Seth Berkeley, who you're going to have uh, later this week, uh, who uh, can talk a lot about the vaccine front uh, because he's uh, definitely at the center of that at being the head of, of Gavi. We do need to get really cheap testing out to these countries uh, and we need to get therapeutics so you don't need to put 5% of people on respirators because even if they had the equipment, they don't have the personnel. They just don't have the beds, the capacity. Uh, and so the only good news is that the rich countries have this and so they will be learning about testing therapeutics uh, and funding the vaccines for the entire world to try and minimize uh, the, the damage in developing countries. Great, I'll, I'll be back later with more questions. <laughs> Bill, um, you mentioned therapeutics there. What is looking promising? Is anything looking promising? Yeah, so there's quite a, a range of things going on. There's a few that get mentioned a lot, uh, remsevadir, hydrochloroquine, azithromycin. And the data is still a bit confusing, but there's some positive data on those. Uh, remsevadir is a, a five-day IV infusion and actually kind of hard to manufacture. So people are looking at how that can be improved. Uh, the hydrochloroquine looks like it works somewhat if you get in early. There are a huge list of compounds, including antibodies, antiviral drugs. And so the Gates Foundation and Wellcome Trust, uh, with support from MasterCard and now others, created this therapeutic accelerator to really triage out. You have hundreds of people showing up and saying, try this, try that. So we look at lab assays, animal models, and so we understand which things should be prioritized for these very quick human trials that need to be done all over the world. And so the coordination on that is very complex uh, globally. But I think, you know, out of the top 20 or so candidates, probably three or four of them will work out, you know, at different stages of the disease to uh, reduce the respiratory distress. I heard you mention that one possibility might be treatments from the the serum, the, the blood serum of people who had had the disease and recovered. Um, so I guess they're carrying antibodies. Talk, talk a bit about that, about how that could work and what it would take to accelerate that. Yeah, this has always been discussed is how could you pull that off? So people who are recovered, uh, it appears, have really effective antibodies in their blood. So you could go transfuse them and only take out the, the white cells, the immune cells. Uh, and then the question is, okay, how many patients worth of material could you get? You know, if you have that recovered person come in, say, once a week, do you get enough for two people or five people? Then logistically, you have to take that and get it to where that need is. And so it's, it's fairly complicated. It, you know, compared to a drug that we can make in high volume, you know, the cost of taking it out and putting it back in uh, probably uh, doesn't scale as well. But there's a, there is work being done on this. Uh, it, you know, we actually started with Ebola, and fortunately it got done before it was uh, uh, needed. Uh, uh, so that is being pursued, and it'll work to some degree, but it'll be hard... To, to scale the numbers. So it's almost like when you, when you talk about the need to accelerate testing, the immediate need is for testing for the virus. Um, but is it possible that in a few months' time that there's going to be this growing need to test for these antibodies in people, i.e. to see if someone had the disease and recovered? Maybe they didn't even know they, they had it. Because you could picture this growing worldwide force of 
heroes, let's call them heroes, who've, who've been through this experience and have a lot to offer the world. Maybe, maybe they can offer, you know, like blood, blood donation, serum donation, um, but also other tasks. Like if you've got overwhelmed healthcare systems, presumably there are kind of community health worker type tasks that people could be trained to do to relieve the pressure there if we knew that they were effectively immune? Yes. Until we came up with the, uh, the self-swab and showed FDA that that's equivalent, we were thinking the people who might be able to man those kiosks would be the recovered patients. Now, we don't want to have a lot of recovered people. You know, To be clear, we're trying through the shutdown uh, in the United States to not get to 1% of the population infected. We're well below that today, but with exponentiation, you know, you could get past uh, that, that 3 million. I'm, I'm, I believe we will be able to avoid that uh, with the, um, having this economic pain. Eventually, what we'll have to have is certificates of who's a recovered person, who's a vaccinated person, because you don't want people moving around the world where you'll have some countries that won't have it under control. Sadly, you don't want to completely block off the ability for those you know, people to go there and come back and move around. Bill, is your foundation helping to accelerate the manufacture of these self-tests? What are the prospects for really seeing scale on some of this testing soon? Not just in the US, but, but, uh, but globally. Yeah, our foundation, we'd been funding a thing called the flu study to really understand how respiratory viruses spread. It's amazing how little was understood uh, about how important schools are, different age groups, different types of interaction. And that gave us an experience. In fact, that flu study actually was the first time coronavirus was found in the community because the government was still saying you only test people who come from China. But we ran into people who had coronavirus who weren't, uh, hadn't been travelers. So, you know, that was like an early warning sign, even though the regulation said you weren't supposed to uh, even look at that. So, um, yeah, the foundation is working with all the private sector people, the diagnostics people on this testing piece. The Now that we can do the uh, self-swab, those swabs are very easy to manufacture. The one where you had to jam it into the throat, deep turbinate, that uh, was getting into short supply. So the swab you know, should not be limiting, neither should the, the various chemicals that help run the, the PCR machine. So we, we should be able to get to a South Korea type prioritized testing thing within, within a few weeks. How important is it that the world's nations collaborate right now. I mean, it's, you know, it seems like, you know, here's this common enemy facing humanity. It does not know that it just crossed a border. It does not know what race people are, what religion they are. It just knows, here's a human. I've, I've, got, I've, got, I've got a manufacturing machine here that uh, can make me famous. And, and it goes to work. It's so terrifying to me to see signs of, of countries starting to blame each other or you know, the, the, the xenophobia just seems so toxic. How do you, how, how are you, what's your take on this, Bill? Is there anything, do you see signs of cooperation happening or, or are you also worried about the sort of US versus China kind of um, thing that seems to be going on if we're not careful? Well, I see both. I see that countries that are recovered can help other countries. And that, you know, that's fantastic. Uh, if by the summer uh, we've knocked this thing down, then great, we can help other countries. There are vaccine projects all over the world and those should be evaluated on a very neutral basis to which one is the, the best to help humanity and make sure the manufacturing capacity isn't just for rich countries, that it's scaled up very low cost stuff or the entire world, and that's the spirit of Gavi, is getting vaccines out to uh, every person. So you see really good in the science side and data sharing side, you see this great cooperation going on. Unfortunately, whenever you have disease, this sense of other and foreign and no, stay away from me, uh, are, you know, that sort of pulling inward is reinforced, and we have to avoid that um, you know, ironically, we have to isolate physically while in terms of 
looking at community uh, groups that are pooling resources to help make sure food gets to everyone and help sure medical care and that, you know, if older people need to be moved out of common facilities, you help out with that and that, you know, people aren't uh, suffering too much from the psychology of isolation. So our generosity has to go up towards others at the same time where we're less actually physically uh, in interacting with other people. I mean, thinking about the situation in, in many developing countries, I'm curious how, how you think of this. I mean, you mentioned, first of all, that seasonality may help, i.e. high temperatures. Is it possible that that is so far protecting Place, to some extent, places like India or, or, or sub-Saharan Africa and so forth. Um, well, India, India's is, northern hemisphere. So southern hemisphere is lots of Africa, South America, Australia, New Zealand, Indonesia. And it is true either they're not, either the force of infection is lower there or we're just not seeing it with testing. You know, a few months from now, we'll understand the seasonality question, which would be good news for the northern hemisphere and somewhat bad news for the southern hemisphere. Now, more people live in the northern hemisphere, including you know India, Pakistan, and that would buy us some time. The time is a big deal because all these tools get so much uh, better if you had to go into a, a second season with it. But yes, yeah, sadly, we could see in the next few months as the uh, southern hemisphere is moving into its uh, fall and then winter, we could see a big increase there. and and. That is going to be very difficult. Now, they don't have as many older people, but they have lots of people who have uh, who are HIV positive or have malnutrition or various uh, lung uh, challenges because of indoor smoke. And so the wild card is how well can the developing countries deal with this? I mean, if you're in a country where you have the majority of your populations making less than 2 or $3 a day, can you even afford a strategy that looks, looks like basically shutting down the economy? I'm very worried that there will be a massive number of deaths in those poor countries because the health systems just aren't, uh, you know, the number of respirators, hospitals. And, of course, when you overload that system, your deaths are not just COVID deaths, but the everyone else who's trying to access a system that will be somewhat in chaos, including with health workers who are getting sick. Okay, we're getting near to uh, running out of time in this. Whitney, maybe a last question or two from online. Sure, so, so we have two from online. We're seeing thousands of questions around these same lines. One, there's lots of people who are really interested to hear about the kind of work that you're doing with your foundation as far as distributing tests, but also um, produce, producing uh, safety gear, masks, and that sort of thing to help with this effort uh, for health workers. Yeah, so the Gates Foundation, um, you know, we very early on gave out $100 million to help out with uh, all the, the pieces, the testing piece, the therapeutics, and the vaccines. We are not experts in making masks and ventilators and gowns, uh, and it's great that other people, including some 3D printing and open source things, that is great. Our focus, you know, like this self-swab thing, it... You know, nobody had done that before. People thought it wouldn't work. We were quite sure it would work. And so that, for the globe, is a huge thing. We work a lot with both governments and private sector, so in some ways we're kind of a bridge. Uh, and, you know, so we've been talking to the head of the pharmaceutical companies and the testing companies, and specifically with the ones doing vaccines, including some of which are these new type of vaccines, RNA vaccines that we've been backing uh, you know, for quite some time, and CEPI has been backing. And so our expertise are, is in those medical tools and really getting the best of the private sector engaged there. It's been a little slow. We can write checks, you know, right away, whereas the government processes, even in this situation, uh, you know, there's still this notion of bidding and not really knowing who has the unique capabilities of doing things. And, you know, so an organization that's working on this all the time, lots of new vaccines, can step in and, and, and be helpful. And it's really amazing. When we talk to private sector partners, their interest uh, in helping out is, has been absolutely fantastic. Uh, 
And, you know, so that's where where we have a unique role. That's great. And I mean, and the, the other question that we're just seeing a ton of uh, before we wrap up here is, is it's just people are really interested in your insight, Bill, on whether you think we're heading in the right direction. Do you feel like our economy is heading in the right place, that humanity is heading in the right place? Are we in a better position now than you thought we were in five years ago? Well, the five years ago, I said that the pandemic uh, is this unaddressed, very, very scary thing. And that, you know, if we did the right things, we could be more prepared. Science is on our side. The the fact we can uh, be ready for the next epidemic, it's very clear how to do that. Uh, And yes, it will take tens of billions, but not hundreds or trillions of, of dollars. So it'll be tiny compared to the economic cost. I remember when I did that presentation in 2015, I put up a, hey, you know, a big flu epidemic could cost $4 trillion. And I thought, wow, that's a big number. Do I really think it's that big? And I went and looked at the numbers. And I thought, yeah, well, that, that's big. This epidemic will cost uh, that much to the economy. So in the short run, we are going to have more pain and more difficulty and people are going to have to step up to help each other. I'm still very much an optimist, you know, whether it's climate change, countries working together, biology taking uh, the, the diseases, malaria, TB, you know, even advances for what are more ritual diseases like cancer. The amount of innovation, the way we can connect up and work together, yes, I'm super positive about that. You know, I love my work because I see progress on all these diseases all the time. Now we have to, you know, turn and and focus on this. You know, sadly, it may interrupt and the polio situation might get worse a little bit because of the distraction here. Uh, You know, we're using a lot of the great capacity that was built up uh, for those polio activities to try and help the developing countries respond to this very well. And that that is appropriate. But, uh, you know, the message for me, although it's very sober when we're dealing with this epidemic, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very positive that this should draw us together. Uh, we will uh, get out of this and then we will get ready for the next epidemic. That's, that's exactly what I was going to ask you, Bella, which is how, where's your head? Do you think we, that we will get through this. Will the leaders that matter listen to the scientists? Will they? Will we make it through? Do you you believe that within a few months' time, we're going to be already looking back and saying, we dodged a pretty bad one there? We we can't say for sure that even the rich countries will be out of this in six to 10 weeks. I think that's likely, but as we get the testing data, we'll get more of a sense of that and people will continuously be able to see that. But, you know, the rich countries will get out of this. The developing countries will bear a significant price. But even they, we will get a vaccine and, and you know, Gavi will get that out to, to everyone. So, you know, two to three years from now, this thing, even on a global basis, will essentially be over with a gigantic price tag. But now we're going to know, okay, next time we see a pathogen, we can make billions of tests within two or three weeks. We can figure out which antiviral drugs work within two or three weeks and get those scaled up. And we can make a vaccine if we're really ready, probably in six months uh, using these new platforms, probably the RNA vaccine. So specifically, there are innovations that uh, are there that will get financed uh, you know, I hope quite generously uh, coming out of this thing. And so three years from now, we'll look back and say, you know, that was awful. Uh, there's a lot of heroes, but we've learned the lesson. And, and the world as a whole, uh, with its great science and desire to help each other, was able to try and minimize what happened there and, and, and you know, avoid it happening again. That's certainly the optimistic scenario that I'm craving for myself, that, that the world kind of realizes 
one, that, that there are certain things that you just have to unite on. Two, that science really matters. And, and that, sci- that it's a miracle that science can understand this bug, you know, make a vaccine, sequence it, make therapeutics, understand how to model it. It's kind of miraculous to me. So, so will we learn now to, that, to pay attention to scientists? Because if we do, I, I, I'm sure that you feel this as well, there's an amazing analog, right, with climate. It's just a different time scale that the scientists are out there saying, there's this huge enemy coming. If we do nothing, it's going to take millions of lives. It's going to wreck our planet. For God's sake, act, politicians, do something. And the politicians are going, oh, no, we need a little more GDP. We need to win an election. And they're not acting. May, I mean, is there, do you see a scenario where this shocks politicians to actually change their thinking and their prioritization of science overall? Or is that, that asking too much? Yeah, it's interesting how much of this distraction will delay the urgent innovation agenda that exists over in climate. You know, I have freed up a lot of time to work on climate. I have to say, you know, for the last few months, that's now shifted. uh, And until we get out of this crisis, uh, COVID will dominate. And so some of the climate stuff, although uh, it'll still go on, it won't get uh, that same focus. As we get past this, uh, uh, yes, that idea of innovation and science and the world working together, that is totally common between these two problems. And so I don't think this has to be a huge setback for climate. So last question. There, there are thousands of people watching, many of them um, living alone, um, some scared. There may even be people there who who... Um, have this virus and uh, suffering symptoms or recovering. Um, by the way, if that's if that's you, we'd love to hear from you. Um, we really would. Um, uh, maybe have a conversation with some of you of just, you know, in, in a future one of these, just understanding the experience. But Bill, what can people do as individuals from their own homes right now to try and help? Well, there's a lot of creativity. You know, can you mentor kids who are being forced into an online format where the school systems really weren't ready for that. Can you organize some giving activity that gets the, you know, the food banks to step up where there's uh, problems there? These are such unprecedented times and it really should draw out that, that sense of uh, you know, creativity while complying with the isolation mandates. Well, Bill, I really want to thank you for spending this, this time with us and for the um, the financial investment, the time investment. Uh, you've really invested your life into trying to solve these big problems, and this is as, as big as they get. I have a hunch that your voice is really going to be needed in the next few weeks. Thank you so much for your, for your time today. This was, this was really wonderful hearing from you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Okay, well, thanks, everyone. Thanks for being part of the TED community. Um, look after yourselves. Be smart about this. You know, it's like, get ahead of it. If you're in a part of the world where this thing hasn't really hit, listen to Bill Gates. Get ahead of it. To keep, you know, it just, if you possibly can, socially distance, not, not physically distance and socially connect. That's what the internet is for. These days are what the internet was built for. We can spread love, we can spread ideas, we can spread relationship, we can spread thought without spreading a dangerous bug. Um, So get ahead of it and let's figure this out together. It's been wonderful spending time with you from Whitney and from me and from the whole TED team. Thank you and over and out.